Well, hi there and welcome back to this week's episode of the My Love of Golf podcast. Thanks for tuning in wherever you are around the world. It really is a privilege to have you on board. And this week we have a very special guest and it's going to be worth sticking around for. It's a chat with Carl Morris. Yes, he is the UK's leading mental performance coach. He's coached for over 30 years in the space. You guys know how invested I am in this space, so I'm really keen to have this chat with Carl. He has coached major champion winners such as Louis Oosthuizen, Gray McDowell, Darren Clark and a whole host of other other top-class professional golfers develop their games of golf to maximise their performance on course. That's what we're all about, and that's definitely what Carl has dedicated his life to for 30 years. He has a sensational podcast called the Brain Booster Podcast. You can get that wherever you get your podcast, where Carl interviews really interesting guests about the world of golf. He has the Mind Factor Coaching Academy, and most recently he's launched the app, the Mind Caddy Performance app. Yes, you can just go and download the Mind Caddy app. The links to that app are in the show notes. So if you want the chance to learn and apply Carl's methods to your own game, you can get it all from the convenience of the app. You'll also get access to the podcast and some on-course and off-course resources. It's a really handy little tool that you can have on the power of your phone. There's a free version and a paid version, but make sure you stay on board and listen to this chat with Carl. Grab your notebook out and write some of the nuggets of gold that Carl leaves with us along the way, along the chat. It was a great privilege to get the chance to talk to Carl. So enjoy this chat with Carl Morris from the Brain Booster Podcast, Mind Factor Coaching, and the Mind Caddy app. Thanks for joining. Here's Carl Morris. Carl Morris, welcome to the My Love of Golf podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have uh, have you on. Um, you're someone that I've followed for a while, listened to many of your podcasts. It's great to have you here. How are you over there in the UK? It's a morning time over there, afternoon, evening over here. How are you? Yeah, thanks, Ross. It's uh, it's, it's it's great to be on. I'm looking uh, looking forward to the conversation. We're uh, we're heading into the uh, the UK winter now. I know you're heading into your your summer, so we've, uh, we've got <laughs> you've got good weather coming. We've uh, we've definitely got bad weather coming, and uh, yeah, it's uh, in, in interesting times for for all of us in the world at the moment. It seems that uh, we're in a pretty uh, pretty unstable world. So it'd be, it'd be nice to talk about something like golf today, <laughs> rather than cost of living crisis and fuel bills and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, Carl, you know your catalogue of work in the mental performance space and helping golfers be better golfers is prolific. You know, I mentioned there briefly, you've got your um, authoring of the books, you've got the Brain Booster podcast, you've got the Mind Factor Training Academy. How long have you been involved in developing mental performance strategies for golfers to be better golfers? And, you know, if we had to get a little bit of a summation of, you know, that part of your career, what does that look like? Yeah, it's been the best part of 25 years now, Ross, and it's, uh, Suppose it all stemmed initially from my my own failures, really, as a player. I think as a, as a lot of golf professionals who were perhaps listening started out, where I had visions of being one of the top players in the world, and and was spectacularly unsuccessful at that, you know. And and I, and I went more into conventional coaching in, initially, and found out what I was what I was doing was actually repeating many of the same patterns that actually occurred to me. You know, I, I really struggled in the sense that I would get on the range, hit good shots, go onto the golf course, and then really struggle taking it to the golf course. And and for many years, I thought all the solutions were just going to be in better technique. And I went endlessly down the rabbit hole of going to different coaches, getting good information, coming back to the range, hitting it well on the range, and then going to a big tournament, a big event, something where I wanted to play well, 
and same old results. And I realized that what I was doing in my own coaching all those years ago was, was doing very much the same thing. I was just passing on technical information that people maybe hit the ball well on the range, but then trying to get them to take it to the golf course was a different story. So I became very interested in in the performance side of things, what was happening in the brain that caused a lot of these issues. I left the game for a couple of years, went and studied. I didn't study in a kind of formal academic sense. I, I looked at all kinds of approaches in a game, you know, Timothy Galway. I went to see Fred Shoemaker in, in, in California at Carmel, uh, NLP, hypnosis. So there's a wide, wide range of, of, of different approaches. And and then came back and I, I actually for a few years was, was working more with people away from the game on things like habit control, you know, trying to trying to lose weight, stop smoking, that that kind of thing. And and I think that was probably the most important couple of years of my life, really, because I because I because I went away from the game. Um, I could I could see the system a little bit clearer. I think if I just stayed in it, I would just carried on making the same old mistakes. But I think those two or three years out of the game were really valuable and allowed me to reformulate some ideas. Um, came came back and was was really lucky with a couple of players. There was a, a guy in the area that I live in here in the northwest of England, uh, a, a lad called Philip Archer, who was known as the Pro-Am King. And he used to shoot some amazing scores in Pro-Ams, 62s and 63s. And he would go and play in big events, four-round events, and and really not struggle to put the put the four rounds together. And uh, we, we started working together. Uh, he, was, he was pretty close to giving up the game. He, we, we did some work together and but sort of six or seven months later, he went to the European Tour Qualifying School. He shot 27 under, got his tour card, got on tour, had a few successful years out there. But that led to led to other players. I was fortunate to work with the likes of Darren Clark, Lee Westwood, Graham McDowell. And the, and the snowball started to roll down the hill and... Twenty odd years later, I'm still asking. Still asking. Asking this. I'm not. I'm just definitely not got all the answers, but I'm still asking a few reasonable questions. I think. Well, you know, a couple of points there for me. Like the players that you've worked with. Uh, you know, if if you had to ask me beforehand, who are some of your favourite players that have played the game? You know, maybe in with a European bias. You know, you, you've you've just named three or four of them right there. So I'm keen to just maybe get a couple of stories and nuggets of gold of your time working with. Uh, Darren and Lee and GMAC and, and Louis, et cetera. But you mentioned there about, um, you know, the Pro-Am King shooting low scores and then not taking that into, into tournament prof- profession, um, into the tournament world. And you've been at this for 25 years, but I reckon that if I asked you, you still see that type of situation day in, day out, week in, week out with golfers all around the place. Is that true? You know, do you think that people still have that type of pattern in their approach to golf? Yeah, in many ways, Ros, I don't think we've evolved an awful lot in the past 25 years because that's exactly the the, the main problem that people have, that, that golfers can go to the range, they can work on certain things in the technique, hit the ball well on the range, and then it just doesn't transfer to the golf course. And I think, you know, if you if you look at it in terms of the, the, the whole picture of golf, that, that range practice is a relatively modern phenomenon, you know, in the in, terms of the history of the game most people up until the probably the 1950s late 1950s 1960s probably Hogan was one of the first ones um to to promote working on the range and hitting lots of balls up until that point most golfers would have learned to play the game on the golf course Hmm. you know going way back to the to the Scottish professionals yes people hit balls but predominantly we learned the game on the golf course so I think there's still that disconnect and that disconnect in an understanding 
that you know when you're on the range and you're commanding your body to move in certain ways there's an element where you can make that work on the range but then being able to transfer that onto the golf course becomes very difficult because the brain responds in every environment in every element of our life our brain responds to context context is everything you know you, a person will behave very differently when they're on a football terrace than they would in a, in a library obviously that's a gross example but when you think about the context of a, of a of a range that we're standing there in the same location with a perfect lie to a big wide open field and then we go on a golf course that is a very dynamic, ever-changing environment with lots of hazards and lots of different uh, challenges that we've got. It's no wonder that the brain can easily start to freak out when it goes to the golf course if there's not that if there's not that connection between what you're doing in your training on the range and actually the real world of the golf course. Yeah, and so how then, you know, what would you say for people to develop that context? You know, is it just simply playing? doing more of your practice on course and putting yourself in those situations where you have to make decisions, game-like decisions, or, you know, do you do you take the game-like um, situations into your practice? I think it's there's, an, there's elements of both, Ross, to be honest. But I think, just not evading the question, but, but to sort of open up a, a different discussion, I, I think one of the biggest questions that golfers should consider when they're, when they're perhaps listening to this podcast, I call it the... The fundamental question, which is, does the does the shot create the swing, or does the swing create the shot? Now, if you believe that the swing creates the shot, there's an element of if I can just get my golf swing right, then I, eventually this golf swing will start to produce shots. Now, if you've worked if you've worked with that and that's been successful, great, continue with it. But for most people, there's a big disconnect. They're constantly working on the golf swing, but never really tying it up to actually hitting shots. Now, one of the things that we know is that is that your body will organize movement around a clear intention. You know, we've evolved to do that. You know, if you have a clear intention to throw a ball to somebody, your body will organize movement around that without too much conscious intervention. Now, if you believe that the shot creates the swing, which which Gary Nichol and myself do, is that you begin with the end in mind. You begin with the idea of what you're trying to do with the golf ball. And then working with a coach, it can be a wonderful collaboration to actually organise whatever you need to do with the golf club, the club face, to actually produce the shots. So I think... In in many ways, we, we we actually don't start in the right place when we're trying to work on a golf swing. We just home in on what, what is wrong with how a golf swing looks rather than relating it to what am I actually trying to do with the golf ball. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. You know, like you, you talk about how golf swings look and, you know, I think the world of golf coaching you know, continues to evolve, but, you know, we're all obsessed with looking at golf swings on Instagram and online and that sort of thing. And, and, I think for a lot of people that's dangerous because, you know, there's so much content out there which is just uh, guys and girl coaches, you know, talking about face and hand path and all of that sort of stuff. But then there's all this other content where you see professionals who have been very successful in the game with way different positions that anyone's talking about. So there's this, you know, you can actually achieve, you know, something with a swing that doesn't look technically perfect. 100%. And, and unfortunately... 
technology hasn't delivered what it's promised in the sense that, you know, I, I remember when video first came along, mm. and video was going to be the answer to all of our problems because, oh, great, I can see my golf swing. But unfortunately, vi video drew us into the visual world of how something looks. Now, you know, we'd all love to, we'd all love to swing it like Adam Scott, this beautiful symmetrical looking golf swing. But actually, you know, when you, as you've just said, when you look at the best players in the world, there's a whole bunch of different looking golf swings that immediately when we get drawn into how our golf swing looks, we can get drawn down a real rabbit hole when actually, what is it that we're trying to do? Well, if I'm actually trying to hit a draw or a fade or a high or a low or something like that, what I, what I really need to be understanding, what I really need to be clear on is what does the... What does the golf club need to do to produce that shot? You know, what path do I need to swing in? And what does the face orientation look like? So when we're connected back from shots rather than swings, then we get a little bit less obsessed with how something looks rather than how something functions. You know, I, I say to all the players, do you want style or do you want skill? Now, if you want style, you want to look good, well, great, go away and get your video out and keep checking it every day. And, you know, hopefully you'll evolve and then you'll get this beautiful looking golf swing that will hit great golf shots. Unfortunately, for most people, that tends not to be the way it works. But if you want if you want uh, skill, the skill of producing a low shot, the skill of producing a draw or a fade or whatever it is, then you become, I think, much more in tune with the implement in your hand, the tool in your hand. You see, it's amazing. If you think about it, Ross, this game, you know, I, I would imagine most tennis players are incredibly tuned into the, the racket that they've got in the hand. You look at some of the amazing things that happen in, in cricket, you know, especially with T T20 and things like that, some of the amazing shots that are played in cricket these days. Now, I would imagine most cricketers are really tuned into the bat, that if I do this with the bat, it's going to do that with the ball. And yet we come to a game like golf, where I would say most, most golfers are focused on almost everything other than the tool in the hand. Hmm. They become obsessed with what their arms and legs and hips and shoulders are doing at the expense of really being aware of what the golf club is doing to, to produce certain, certain types of shots. So, you know, that would be, that would be one, I, one area of exploration I would suggest people look at if you're maybe struggling a little bit with your game. Get, get working with somebody where the, the focus of your attention is much more on, on what shots are you trying to play. Because ultimately, when you come off a round of golf, they don't ask you how many swings you've made. No. They ask you how many shots you've hit. So, you know, get far more tuned into the shots and then really become attuned to the implement in your hand. Really become a craftsman with that tool in your hand of how you need to apply that golf club to the ball to produce certain shots. And that way, mental and physical, I think, can start to blend together where you're creating shots in your mind's eye, but your body's able to organise movement around those images to produce the shots that you're actually seeing. There are ways that you can build a more proficient mental performance game by doing that online, you know, as we've discussed before. You know that I'm involved with Jamie Glazier and we have uh, an online coaching um, uh, system there and, you know, anyone that clicks on a link for me will always find that um, coaching course that we have, which is video-based. You also are in that space and, you know, you've recently developed your tool, the Mind Caddy, which is an app-based learning tool. Do you want to explain your, I guess, perspective on how you can build a more solid mental uh, game and approach to the game by learning online and maybe talking about the Mind Caddy and, and what that's designed to do and how it can help? Yeah, one of the things I think that if I, if I look back with with players over the years, what's the, 
have done well and the collaboration between the two of us has worked well, I think the, the, the most important element has been accountability, whereby we would work on whatever it whatever it may be in the game that they that we deem uh, important to work on. But then each week there's a there's a, there's an email sent. There's some feedback from that player to me, and then me to them in terms of accountability. And that's one of the things that we've that we've done in the in in the Mind Caddy app is is create that a, a ability to monitor what you're doing with your show with your with your mental game. You know, you can you can fill in a journal. You can assess your performance on the golf course relative to the some of the strategies that we that we talk about in there. So it's the, to me that the app is the next best thing to actually working with somebody because it does provide a, some kind of structure to the mental game. It's provides some kind of accountability. And, you know, within that, I think uh, listening to the programs that to me, I've always, I've always suggested that the most important thing with all of this is that, is that you work with somebody but you end up personalizing the information. You take the concepts and you personalize them and you own them yourself. So, you know, as much as I, as much as I've already talked about, does the shot create the swing, or does the swing create the shot? I'm a great believer in in not dismissing anybody in the sense that if you're working on something that's working really well, surely you should continue with that. So when, I'm not saying for one minute that this approach is the only way to do it. But if you have been struggling with the way that you've been trying to, trying to play the game, it's maybe an alternative way to look at it. But that that would be the number one thing is, is providing some kind of accountability and feedback for what you're actually aiming to do on the golf course. So in, in the Mind Caddy app, you know, you've got a free version and then there's a subscription-based version. You know, what what's the difference between, you know, what you get if you just want to have a lurk around and have a look and, and versus then, you know, what you get in terms of helping you if you're, you know, making an investment in developing your game? I mean, the the the, the free version. You, you basically just get a taster of some of the programs. There's some good content in there about how to how to train better before you play, the things that you do before you actually go to the golf course. But once you get into the subscription version, there's a much more complete program. You know, there's there's particular sections on winter training. It's all series of things that you can go through. And then, as I say, the journaling aspect of of, of the mental game. You know. It's a broad generalization, but I would say that the most successful people I've come across, not just in golf, but in life in general, are, are, are wonderful journal takers. They write things down, they reference the, they reference the things that they do and the things that work for them. So once you get into the subscription model, you get much more availability for that uh, for that, as I say, that accountability and a much more extensive amount of programs to work with. How have you found? The uptake since launching the app, and, and you know, have you have you learnt anything out of being a provider of apps? You know, it's a it's a big big space to be an app owner. Um, new, still a new space in many cases. What what have you learnt since um, seeing this data come through the app? What have I learned? I, I, I don't do any of the technical stuff because I'm 36 handicap at technical stuff. Or the the, uh, the guys who, who who do all that side of it, I just sort of provide the provide the content. But it, 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 I mean, apps are just a, you know, a wonderful way of, of getting information out to a, you know, a really broad cross section of people, and I think that's wonderful. I think it, it, you know, it makes the mental game more accessible. You know, not everybody can afford to work with a, a mental game coach, but I think there's more uh, acceptance now that it's a, it's a vital part of the game. You know, there's not too many players on the on the on the European Tour or the PGA Tour that are playing that don't have some kind of um, mental approach or m mental game coach in the in the 
in their team or in their staff. So I think you know there there is this awareness of it of this of this side of the game now, and and I think you know, apps are a wonderful way of at least dipping your toe in the water and, and getting into the entry level. And then if you if you're interested in it and you see some re, some returns on your investment, you can uh, you can pursue it even further. One of the things, and maybe this is just an obvious question, I don't know, but you know, what are the telltale signs as an amateur golfer, as a club golfer, week in week out, that you need to spend time working on your mental game rather than your technical game is there are there any telltale signs that you know if you're a golfer that's doing this this or this like for me i always knew from my junior career that my deficiency in my game was between the ears i didn't know how to do anything about it and i spent all of my life not knowing how to do anything about it and, and until i came into contact with jamie and we started working together and you know in effect i was getting by hosting the podcast support and training by osmosis and being able to interview people and talk about it and offering myself up as the guinea pig i i knew but i think a lot of people that i see and in my world carl you know i i'm talking to golfers every day this is fun to do and it's a great personal development project but i speak and try and make a living out of selling people golf clubs and i know a lot of people say oh you don't need to buy golf clubs to get a better game but in in helping people get better golf clubs and maybe a bit of confidence that comes with that, I get to see a fair bit of insight into what's holding them back. And I don't think a lot of people really identify or understand that they need to develop their mental performance game. Do, do you agree or disagree with that? Or do you know that there are some telltale signs? And if you are feeling X, Y, and Z, you need to look at this? Yeah, I, th I think it's a, it's a great point that because we, we tend to play golf and then come off the golf course and it's just a bad day and uh, we don't we don't i think most golfers don't reflect effectively on on the way that they play the game you know to me one of the most important things that you can do is look for your patterns you know go, all golfers will, all golfers will say i want to be more consistent well well generally they are you know it, it might be consistently bad but they, yeah. they are generally consistent in, in in what they do you know look back over your your previous 10 rounds and start to reflect what are, what are the patterns in there i i i often get players to break the rounds of golf down into sets of uh, rather than playing two sets of nine for 18 holes into sets of six sets of three and look back over a few rounds at what are the, what are the patterns that you go through in those in those six, uh, six sets of three do you know do you, do, you, do you generally get off to a bad start do you do you drop shots around the turn do you do you blow up at the end what are the things that you do but i think you know fundamentally if you can if you get if you get a sense that there's this huge gap between what you see on the range and the capabilities that you've got and your actually ability to put scores together then you start to get a sense you could get some real benefit from from working on on, on the mental game you know fundamentally the thing with the game is that we're never going to eliminate bad shots. Bad shots happen for everybody, even the best players in the world. And to me, the bad shots are never the problem. It's the reaction to those bad shots that are the problem. You know, everybody listening to this will have heard a lot about pre-shot routines. Everybody will have heard about swing thoughts and the things that you do over the ball. I would say the lowest hanging fruit for people to improve in the mental game would be the post shot. What do you what do you do after the golf ball is gone? What what is what are the typical ways that you react to the inevitable post shots? Do you get are you are you an angry golfer? Are you do you get down on yourself? Do you get you, you know do you withdraw into yourself? Do you get very technical in your approach trying to fix the golf swing out on the golf course? So if you were just you know that would be you know one one recommendation for me. If you looked at nothing else in your golf 
other than your post-shot routine? What is it that you do after that golf ball has gone? How are your reactions? You know, I've done a lot of work with a neuroscientist in the last couple of years, a guy called Izzy Justice, and he's come out with some tremendous research and tremendous information. And he has a saying that the most expensive shot in golf is the, is the makeable missed short put. You know, you've just missed a three foot or four foot or five foot or whatever, something that's very makeable, something that you feel like you should hold. That is the most expensive shot in golf, not because you've just missed the putt, but because of your reaction to that and then what happens afterwards. And I think, you know, you can see this at all levels of the game. You'll generally see a player on tour hitting a shot offline on, on a particular tee. And very often the, the, the commentators, then the analysts will, will say, OK, well, he, he did this in his golf swing. He dropped it on the inside. He did this. He did that. He flipped his hands or whatever it may be. But actually, if you track it back, what happened before that tee shot? You know, if you go back a few minutes, you'll find he's just missed a really short put on, on the previous green, stormed off, not gone through his process on the next shot, and we're blaming the golf swing for everything. You know, Pia Nielsen's got a great saying, you know, she often says, I feel sorry for the golf swing because it gets blamed for everything. Mm. When actually, if we just look a little bit deeper into it, there's a little bit more to it, and the reactions to your shots can have a huge, huge, huge influence on your ability to put scores together. Yeah. And I guess, does that come back to expectation and, you know, having a realistic understanding of what your expectations are as a golfer and how you set them, you know, for yourself? I think expectations are something that everybody should should look into and we have unbelievably unrealistic expectations based on a lot of what we see on TV. You know, TV is very misleading when we watch the best players in the world because we forget that we're watching the best players in the world having their best week, playing the best golf of that year. You know, the best players in the world miss miss one in every three fairways. They only hit, best players only hit 12 out of 18 greens on, on average. So they're, they're, they're missing a lot of shots. You know, they're only making... 50% of putts from eight feet, that that kind of thing. So the best in the world are making a lot of mistakes. And then we come to play the game and play off 10 handicap or whatever and expect, expect to, you know, flush it around and, and never never knock it offline. So I think just being a little bit more realistic with your with your expectations is a huge um is 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 a is a very important part of the mental side of the game that you can start to then deal with the inevitable bad shots. In a, in, a, in a better way that just keeps the ship on a on a much more even keel. Uh, one area that I always like to investigate, and you mentioned Gary Nichol, who you know, you've know you co-authored a book with. Um, does Gary, is Gary still up in Scotland? Is he still working out of Archerfield? Or? He is. He's at a uh, beautiful golf club just outside uh, just outside Edinburgh called Archerfield, right in between Gullen and North Berwick, spectacular part of the world, yeah. Yeah, well, my listeners know that I'm very familiar with that part of the world. I, I go there uh, every year or so, and uh, I'm a member at Craigielaw, which is just down the road, and uh, I love it. Maybe one Beautiful day spot. Oh, it's lovely. Um, and maybe one day I'll go and see Gary because, you know, you, you co-authored the book on um, – the lost art, the, well, there's the lost art of putting, the lost art of golf, and then the lost art of the short game. So there you go. Two of those areas, if I was to look at what holds me back from being better than a five handicapper, is the lost art of putting and the lost art of the short game. So maybe Gary might be able to help me. But clearly Gary's a professional golf coach who you work with, and he understands what you do, and you understand what he does. Do you think all 
golf coaches who coach the swing appreciate and understand the mental performance game and how important it is? Or do they push it away thinking that's going to that's gonna do me out of, out of business? I, I think the best coaches these days are, 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 are blending much more an understanding of great, great technical knowledge, clearly, but also an understanding of how the brain works and, and performance elements of it. I mean, Gary will tell you, you know, we've, we've worked together for a good few years now. And Gary, I'm sure, wouldn't mind me saying that probably 90% of his lessons are, are probably more geared to the mental side of it, of the game now, rather than just purely, purely technique. Yes, yes, he will. He's got a, a very broad knowledge of what the golf club needs to do. He's a track man master professional he's got all that technical information but many of gary's lessons now are actually out on the golf course and when he's when he's doing putting lessons there's a lot more in terms of what's going through the person's mind before they actually hit the putt rather than just purely homing in on on on, on technique so i think you know i think the golf to me, to me the golf coach of the future the ultimate deliverer of great golf lessons and great golf coaching yes has a great knowledge of technique but also has a much broader knowledge and understanding of the psychological side of the game. And that's why I think, you know, to, 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 to dis dismiss uh, one or the other and just put yourself in one camp, I think is, 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 is limiting your ability to get the best out of your, out of your students. So I don't, you know, I don't think golf pros should be any way uh, scared of working on the mental side of the game. You know, I, I was fortunate enough years ago working with, with Darren Clark, I, uh, and, and we went out to um, when he was working with Butch Harmon, and I, and, I, and I observed Butch giving Darren lessons for a couple of days at his place in in Las Vegas. And you know, I came away initially thinking, "Wow, is it is is that all he's going to say to him in terms of the golf swing?" Because what he what he delivered was really very simple. But I now realise how stupid I was then in those days because I didn't realise that Butch was an absolute master at keeping the technical side really quite simple, but actually more working on on Darren's attitude and his confidence and his belief in himself so you know I'm sure he, he probably wouldn't even think of himself this way but I, I think I think Butch Harmon inadvertently has delivered great psychology to players for you know 30 odd 40 years yeah and I guess at some point you know the whole skill of being a coach is is around being able to interpret what might be going on in a player or even in a professional professional development and business coaching any form of coaching and I guess you probably experienced that when you had the time away but just as a coach understanding what someone's might be thinking and, and just trying to influence you know maybe a different neural pathway or whatever you call it but a different way of thinking it's interesting are you able to start, tell give us any more detail about you know that session with Darren and, and Butch and you know what was he doing to you know give him that confidence that he does have the ability to com commit to those shots and make those shots was there something that you can share with us there yeah I mean it, it, it was it was just really quite simple stuff in terms Terms of what he wanted him to do technique I can't remember it's this sort of 17 years ago when it when it happened I can't remember what the technical thing that he that he told him but it was very much it was very much around the shots that he was trying to play I think it was he was trying to get him to fade it a little bit more perhaps or I can't, I can't remember the exact details but it was it was it was it was really very simple in, in its approach and, and getting him to just focus on on one key thing in the swing rather than a bunch of things but then you know, much more talking about taking the, the, the golf shots that he had and the ability to have 
And I remember him having conversations about upcoming events and his approach going into it and, and how he was going to feel going into those those events. So it was it was look at like I say I was too stupid to realize it at the time, but it was it was a masterclass in mm. a, a coach keep number one keeping it simple, and then number two helping a player understand their capabilities and getting them to getting them to feel much yeah. better about about the game yeah. you know and that that was that was just um and, and the other the other side of it i've also seen many occasions where players have been to coaches and and just been bombarded with information hmm. and you know you know you can see careers literally unraveling i've seen i've seen far too many careers unravel as a result of too much information rather than too little information. And I think that is the ultimate skill. I think it was Tommy Armour, wasn't it, who said, you know, we, we've, we've got to know the golf swing in all its complexity to be able to coach it in its simplicity. I've probably paraphrased him very badly there, but that the, the, I'm sure people get the get 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 the gist of that, that when we're out on the golf course, the, le- the less that we have to pay attention to consciously in our, in our, in our golf swing, the more likely we were able to be to release our true capabilities. And what I was thinking there and just reflecting, you know, I think the, the great golf, well, the great coaches in any regard, because we sort of started talking about it, coaching in, in general, what you, what you said is they let people work it out themselves, you know, and the, a good recipient of the coaching will work out the challenge and, and develop a solution a lot of it by understanding the messages coming in and, and working it out themselves and maybe that's a little bit what darren was doing there um going back to gary nickel there and talking about the lost art of putting i actually hosted an archer field member at my own golf course yesterday um so we were talking about archer field yesterday uh but when i was playing with him yesterday putting i do a couple of things and maybe you can help me digest this if you want i sometimes change putters a little bit so i go looking for that as a solution but yesterday, and I was putting yesterday with a part of that I was reasonably comfortable and confident with, you know, something, one that stays in the little shed here with a little cupboard just beside me here. It's one of maybe 20 putters in there and picked that one out several weeks ago and we're back in love. But yesterday I distinctly remember, and I don't like to use the term, but maybe a tremor, maybe a little tremor um, coming into my longer putts. Not the super long putts because I could put a good swing on that, but, but those putts that you need to either lag up close to the hole and I could feel something happening. And I changed mid-round to the claw but I could yep. feel something happening and and I felt it before and I knew then I had to do something to switch that what's going on for me in that case because I, I reckon people feel that tremor and they they do or don't do something about it but I sort of felt the tremor switched the claw drained a 15 footer felt pretty happy moved on um I'll probably stick with the claw until that goes away what's happening there for me yeah, I mean, I wish, I wish, I, could, I wish I had a simple answer to that, Rose. I mean, you know, what one thing is for certain that as human beings, we feel slightly different every day. Hmm. You know, the, the way that we've slept, the way that we've ate, whatever we've eaten the night before, the arguments with our wives, the kids, there are all these different kinds of things that make up this complex uh, composition called a human being. And on any given day, you know, you can feel certain things. That in 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 your golf swing or in your putting stroke that really don't feel quite right. What what I think that you've done really well there, and and it's something I always encourage to to play is is not to make a monument out of it, not to make a monument out of that on a given day that you know you might feel a little bit iffy with your putting stroke, but you've actually just taken some action in 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 the round. You've done something that has allowed you to actually deal with those issues and move on and get through to the end of the end of the round. 
Now, clearly, if if this becomes something that happens all the time and gets worse and worse and worse, you need to just look into it and the solutions to it, the causes of the yips or the tremors can, you know, can be a, a previous really negative emotional experience. There's as research suggests that that um, the yips can be a muscular problem, a focal dystonia, whereby you've repeated a movement over and over again so that the kind of command from brain to body gets a little bit frayed. And that's why actually changing the action, going to a claw, going to reverse-handed, cack-handed, whatever it may be, can actually be a very good, effective strategy because you're basically recruiting a new set of neurons to create a new motor program. To, to, to get the action done but you know ultimately I think you know one of the one of the key things I always say to players is to be aware that every day you play the game it's going to feel slightly different you know you are you are going to go out there and there's going to be different sensations how many how many times have I ever heard a player say to me you know I've had the golf swing under control now for three weeks and and every and every day's felt the same it's never ever happened you know even the best players in the world have immense variability in how they feel from day to day so it's about very much and this is where the, the mental the, the the skill of adaptability and flexibility come in is being able to go out on the golf course and get the job done with whatever you've got that day with whatever tools that you need to use that day to get the ball around the golf course Many, many tournaments have been won by players who've played really well for, say, two rounds, and then the middle round, it's a real struggle, but they somehow found a way of getting it round in that third round when they've really not got their A game with them. It's the C or, or D game. They get it round in level par, hang on in there. Cam Smith in the Open was a good example, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, on the on the Saturday, on the Saturday, he really didn't play that well at all. He struggled, but he just hung in the hung in the hung in the. Can't remember what he shot, seven whatever it's seventy seventy one whatever it was in the in the third round, and then came out in the final round, and it was a completely different story. Hold everything, and and he became open, open champion. You know, did he did he did he win the Open because he shot a low round in the final round? Yes, of course he did. But what allowed him to do that was just hanging in there on a tough day on the on on the Saturday. So, you know that that again is this myth of 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 we joked about consistency before, but this myth of consistency that I can just feel the same each day is nothing can be further from the truth. It's about having a set of tools that allow you to be flexible and adaptable to get the job done with whatever you've got on any particular day. And what what comes to mind there is another term that, you know, I've, I've learned and, and been able to, uh, I guess, appreciate. And we sort of talked about it before is acceptance, you know, and how important yeah. acceptance is in the game of golf and, you know, that it happens and it's, and just move on and, and, and keep going. If there was a, if there was the number one skill, if somebody said, what's the number one skill you'd want players to develop and get better at, Rossi, for me, that would be the, the holy grail. Is the is the skill of acceptance, the ability to if you look at if you look at every every shot that you play in the game, every shot whether we like it or not, out on the golf course has got three parts to it. You've 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 got your process that you go through before you hit the shot. You've got the shot itself, and then what happens afterwards, as we mentioned, the post shot routine. But if you can develop the skill of acceptance, accepting any outcome, good, bad, or indifferent, based on the fact that you did the best you could in the first bit, you went through your process, you created the shot, you, you did what you needed to do. That, to me, is 
if, if anybody anybody were listening to this and and, and uh, were to listen to the suggestion of what would be the one thing to go away and work on for the next five to six months, it would be that skill of acceptance. And acceptance isn't resignation. You're not giving up. You're not. You're not. Not that you don't want to hit good shots. It's not that you don't want to put a good score together. It's just a clear understanding that this game is is chaotic. It's it's unpredictable. Nobody in the world knows what shot's coming out next, even the best players in the world. Some of them get close some of the time, but even the best players in the world can't tell you exactly what they're going to go out and shoot. So when you embrace this unpredictability, when you embrace this chaos, actually the, the paradox is things tend to settle down. The more you act, the more you accept the chaos and the unpredictability, the more you develop acceptance, which as I say, is not resignation. You're still determined. You still want to play well. You still want to get good shots. But you have an equanimity about you that whatever the golf ball does, you're going to allow that to leave that behind, go on and create the next shot. Then I, I promise golfers, anybody listening to this, if you really sort of embrace that and really worked on it for a sustained period, you become the best golfer that you can possibly be. But I think more importantly, your whole experience of the game starts to change. Because I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not too, too sure that many people are getting anywhere near what they're capable of getting out on the golf course. And and so much of that is is, is around our, our lack of acceptance of what we actually do and then tying ourselves endlessly in knots, trying to fix all of those things when we're actually out on the course. Yeah, that's uh, very variable. You mentioned a the term there, equanimity. You recently did a podcast on equanimity. Do, do you want to maybe, is that all about acceptance or is you know can you help us understand maybe why we should listen to that podcast. If we were going to go and um, listen to um, the Brain Booster podcast with yourself, what's equanimity all about? Yeah, I mean, it was a guy called John Adler who was on the show who um, is, uh, is, is, is sort of a meditation, sort of Buddhist elements of, 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 of coaching. And, you know, what, what, is, what is equanimity? My, my interpretation of it, Ross, was equanimity is, is being able to accept the reality of things as they currently are. Um, and dealing with things as they currently are, you know, rather than rather than resisting an experience or craving for something to be something different in this moment, it's just you know the golf ball's gone left, the golf ball's gone right. You've topped it, you've hit it too high, you've knocked it through the back of the green. That just is. That's that 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 is equanimity, the ability to just be okay with whatever is. But then, yeah, you can go and fix it if you've if you've knocked it through the back of the green. You can go and recover and, and chip it on the green and, and and hold the pot. But it's it's fundamentally it's not resisting what is currently happening to you. And when you're able to do that, and there's a calmness descends on you, and the brain starts to just operate from lower frequencies then your ability to go to the next shot and make that recovery shot, your ability to go to the next tee and put a good swing on it, I think massively in, in, in increases then. So that that would be my interpretation of, of equanimity is the ability to accept, accept things as they are rather than resisting them and then taking the appropriate action to, to move in the best possible direction after that. Carl, you've got a Mind Factor course coming up. Who are the sorts of people that join you on the Mind Factor uh, courses that you run there in Manchester? Yeah, is, is that is you're yeah. running out of Manchester? Yeah. Who, what type of people do you see 
coming along for the couple of days that it takes to become a mind factor do they become a mind factor coach after participating in or is it just to learn the skills to help them understand their own games what what's mind factor coaching all about and and what do people get out of it when they join you tell me a little bit more about it yeah we've been doing it for 15 years now Ross, and it's uh, it is a certification course and i think initially in the early days we tended to just get golf coaches coming along but but it's it's broadened out and you you get enthusiastic amateurs who want to look more into their own game um you get people who are maybe working with junior players junior organizers parents you know we get about a lot of parents over the years that you know if you if you have a if you have a talented golfer in your family you, you don't get an instructional manual that comes along with that do you you know it's going to be a tough it can be a tough thing to do to to deal with a very talented young player. So we get parents coming along wanting to understand a little bit more about how best that they could support their, their kids. So it re- we, we get we get physios, we get uh, therapists, all, all kinds of different folks, really. And I think that's been, for me, that's been the strength of it. In the last Certainly in the last few years, that's been the strength of it. There's a collection of people with a very diverse sort of view of the world and, and, and share information for, for, for three days. And it's... It's the cliche to say it, but it's the, it's often the conversations in between sessions that are the most valuable. I, I really try and over the last few years, I've tried to make it less about chalk and talk where I'm sort of stood up there and just throwing information at people and make it much more uh, about giving somebody clear concepts that they can consider. And then they, they, they work with discussions, there's exercises and things like that. So they kind of integrate those concepts so that those co- concepts can become can become actual behavior because, you know, we've got so much information, but information is of no value if you actually don't do anything with it and it doesn't become part of what you're, what you're about either as a player or as a coach. Well, as I said, I'd love to, um, you know, participate in one of those one day when I find myself for an extended period of time. How many did you do a year? Yeah, you've, you, there seems to be always we one just in do, November. We, we just do the, the we just do the one um, certification uh, in Manchester each year. I get asked to do uh, certifications different places. You know, I've done them uh, done them in in in, in Europe, um, in in the states for for specific groups, and we have an online version of it as well. For so anybody listening who wanted to do the online version, you know, you can be in Australia, you can be in the states, and you can study it in in, in your own time. It's the uh, it's the complete course, uh, complete home study course. So in some ways, you know, that's that's a that's a, that's a great option because you can keep repeating the learning, you can keep going over the information, um, and then there's projects that you can do to become certified as a result of uh, going through that course. Carl, can I have a, a few more minutes of your time? Sure. Yeah. Perfect. So Darren Clark, uh, another one of my favourite golfers. We started to talk about Darren there before. I was I was at the Open uh, this year and I was sitting on the deck of the Players' Lounge and uh, Darren was maybe two seats away from me. I was just sitting out there having a coffee and Darren was over arm's length, you know, the next set of tables away, probably doing the same. And all of me wanted to go and talk to Darren Clark because, uh, you know, what he's been through in his life, uh, winning the Open. He didn't play that well. I wasn't. I think it was maybe the Thursday uh, that I saw him, so he hadn't really started. Um, so I didn't, you know, hadn't really happened for him at the Open. Obviously, we know that he went on to win the Senior Open, which was great. Do you still are you still in contact with some of these players that you've worked with in the past? You know, do you talk to them? Do you, when Darren wins the Senior Open, do you do you get in contact with him, or you know, what happens for you once you finish with the players, or you know, does it continue on? Yeah, I mean, I've I mean, I've worked with Darren on and off for its best best part of twenty years now. I think we first 
we first got together in 2003, just before he, he actually won the WGC, uh, the, the, the Akron, the stroke play event. Uh, when he when he hauled a whole bunch of putts on the on the back nine on the Sunday afternoon when 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 Tiger was 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 charging at him. Um, so I mean he he now spends most of his time in 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 the Bahamas, which is obviously a tough life for him. Um, and it's been great to see. You know we do we do keep in touch by by text. It's been great to see what he's what he's achieved on 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 the Champions Tour and obviously winning the Senior British Open last year at Glen Eagles was a was a fantastic performance. And I, and I. I think Darren, to me now, has got a, a little bit more equanimity. Hmm. He, he's a little bit better at accepting the fact that everything isn't going to be perfect when he goes out there and, and plays the game. I think by his own admission, Darren is the Darren is the most gifted golfer I've ever seen, Ross, without Seriously? without question. Really? And, I, yeah, and okay. I, yeah, and I, and I've stood on ranges with some pretty good players, but he's the most gifted player I, I've, I've ever seen. We used to we used to do a drill with him. I'm sure. Cup, Coaches who are listening to this will be familiar with it. The um, I think it was actually originated by an Australian coach called Steve Bam. It's called a nine-shot drill where you know, you've got you've got straight, straight draw fade, high, medium, low. You know Tiger Woods has done this for years, and and you and you go through the grid basically to see what what shots you've you've got. And we used to do this drill with, with Darren, so I'd call it high draw, low draw, high fade, low low fade, low straight, whatever whatever it was, and and. Honestly, watching him do that on the range was just like watching Picasso paint. And I remember with Queenwood in London, where he used to be a member, I remember one afternoon, I thought I'd make it a little bit more difficult. And instead of calling the shot out uh, before he actually took the club away, he used to call the shot out at the top of his backswing. So I'd, I'd let him take the club back, swing to the top, and then call it high draw, low fade, whatever. And he could just stand there and just take these beautiful shots, just it didn't, just without, without missing a beat, he would still just play these beautiful subtle little shots and i just thought wow that's serious talent to be able to to be able to do that give it a try for anybody i've been have a, have a go at that have a go at the at the nine shot drill where you only call out the shots at the top of the backswing and see how you get on but the point i was going to make was that in many ways his immense talent was probably what held him back to a degree in the sense that he was that good and he knew what his capabilities were that he got on the golf course and anything less than that was pretty hard for him to deal with and I, and I think you know he, he would be the first to admit there's many tournaments in his in his in his career where he he, he could have won, should have won. We can discuss, we can argue that, but primarily as a result of his his is is the difficulty in accepting that ball striking on the golf course wasn't as perfect as he knew it could be. But I'm, I'm sure in, in in more recent times he's he's developed, as I said, more more equanimity and ability to to, to get better at acceptance and dealing with those less than perfect shots. Well, I'm loving watching Darren, you know, play in the seniors tour and play with, you know, what appears to be a lot of freedom and just a lot of acceptance mm -hmm. that, you know, where he's at now, he's just out there to have fun and play golf. And that uh, win at Glen Eagles was was great. Um, Steve Ban, yes, he coaches in Melbourne uh, at uh, Yarra Bend, so up there in uh, in the city, and still is doing and coaching a lot of elite amateurs and and people. Um, talking about that nine window drill or nine shot drill. I think Tiger's got a, a Netflix thing happening at the moment where he's talking about some of uh, his um, practice and training and, and they talk about that drill. I know Darren was one of the, probably, I don't know, Tiger's got lots of friends on, on tour, and but Darren was recently on a podcast where he talked about his relationship with Tiger, which I think is pretty close. Um, I think, uh, you know, he's one of the guys that, that he does look up to and, and like and, and gets on with. Um, you know, Lee Westwood is another favourite of mine. You know, I've really, you know, 
being similar age. I've loved watching Lee. I, I, I like Lee's style. I like his sense of humour. Uh, no thrust, no fr- no frills. Uh, but I think also Lee, you know, probably you know had some you know maybe from the outside looking in had some challenges of certain parts of his game that he had worked hard to really overcome. You know, were you part of that journey? You know, what was your experience working with Lee? It's a long time since I've worked with Lee. It was back in the early early two thousands, and in, in in those days, he was he, he struggled a lot with his with his short game. Uh, you know, it was he was so good tee to green, hit so many greens that when he when he missed the green, it was almost a shock to the system. And he did do a lot of great work with with Pete Cowan on on the technical side of his of his short game. Had a much, got a much clearer understanding of what he needed to do with the club. And his work he's worked more recently. I'm not sure of the guy's name. He's worked more recently with a a performance coach and. A, and a I've heard Lee again. We keep, we're coming back to this equanimity idea. If you if you hear Lee talk now about his his perspective on the game, it's it's very different than it was a few years ago. He talks a lot about appreciation and gratitude, um, understanding how fortunate he still is to be able to play the game, as, and especially at such a such a high high level. But I think again, he, he's he, he's he's developed. Uh, a more even even balanced approach to the game and being able to deal with the setbacks that that, that come along and again you know we've not we've not touched on it in in the conversation that that we've had but in, in the lost art books Gary and myself talked a lot about the concept of gratitude and how powerful a mind state that is because I think we fall into the trap of thinking that if I go out and play a good golf I'm going to feel good. Now, if you if you're waiting for golf to make you feel good, you're probably going to be waiting most of the time because it doesn't tend to deliver that way. We we have a saying talk about going first about the idea that if you, and it sounds a little bit tree huggy and a bit left field, but if if you, as a ritual, before you went to play golf, just contemplated all of the things that have to conspire to allow you to play golf today. The fact that you're healthy and Again, it's a cliche to say it, but we only realise how valuable that is when it's taken away from us. The fact that you can play, you're in front of a vast amount of people on the face of the earth. The golf course itself, all the things that have had to happen for the golf course to be available to you, the fact you can afford to play, a million different things, which they all sound cliches, but to actually really contemplate how lucky you are to be able to go and play today from a position of gratitude, you know, Relating it to the easy justice work, what that what that does is, is have a, a profound impact on the brain because gratitude tends to release feel good chemicals into the brain, you know, like dopamine. So before you actually go out to play, if you're in that brain state, it becomes much easier to quant- to concentrate. It becomes much easier to focus. It comes becomes much easier to coordinate movement. So I think uh, you know a, a ritual I'll get many golfers to do just before you actually set off for the golf course, or certainly before you get out of the car and you go onto the you go onto the range or you go to the first tee. Is just ask that question. You know what am I grateful for today? And you know there'll be a few guys listening to it thinking, oh that sounds a bit soft and a bit wet and all the rest of it. Well, I promise you, promise you. If you can get really tuned into that and just appreciate just how lucky you are to be able to go and play today uh, and just appreciate what the game is potentially going to give you that day, that that going first, that feeling good before you even start, not waiting for the game to make you feel good. It doesn't guarantee that you're going to go and play well and you don't want to fall into what I call false gratitude trap where you pretend that you're grateful in the hope that it's going to make you play better. 
but your whole experience of the game it'll be fundamentally different when when you start to understand the concepts of gratitude the science of, around gratitude is it's well documented now it's a very 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 powerful and beneficial state for us for us to be in to do to to do life let alone to to play good golf do you do you think that you know when you think about the new current crop of young players and some of them are the best players in the world. Do you think they practice that? You know, the, the, the guys in the States or the guys coming out of the ball striking factories that are, you know, the university golf teams and swinging at 130 miles per hour with the driver and just with this seems to be a focus on hitting as far as they can and then dealing with it. Are they, would they be doing that? Are they practicing gratitude or? Probably not enough. Right. Ross, I, I would say. And, unfortunately then when they do hit the inevitable bumps in the road that come along when the, the game leaves them a little bit or they get an injury or they, they, you know they're not getting onto the tour that they think they should be on they're quite vulnerable then because there's not a there's not a base understanding I think you know if we go back in time go back to the 50s go back to the 60s the generation after the after the the, the wars were probably far more grateful and it's a sweeping statement, this, but I'm far more grateful for the opportunity to play than as we've gone along, we've probably got further and further away from those those mind states. So in answer to your question, I, I would think a lot of them aren't aware of that or aren't actively practising it. But, you know, again, I, I, I see, and this is, a, this is a fair old statement to make, I, I see now with so many young players mm. such a vulnerability because... The, the the whole sense of self-worth is attached to uh, the scores that they produce it's constantly about it's constantly about where I'm going to be in the future um, that th they're actually not playing golf today it's all about today is all about what it might lead to in the future and yes it's nice to have plans and, and goals and dreams and ambitions but the only thing that you've got any kind of agency over at all is is what you're actually doing today and the more detached you become from today, the more the game becomes difficult. So I think rather than waiting for the need for gratitude later on the, down the line, when the game's maybe escaping you, it's connecting with it now and just being really appreciative of what you've got today and the opportunity to play today is, uh, as I say, hugely beneficial. And I guess, and the guess why I wanted to start with, you know, that question around what the younger elite players are doing. Yeah, I don't know you've answered this question before and you probably get it all the time on a daily basis. But, you know, if someone's listening to this and they are a parent of a young developing athlete, golfer, what can they do? You know, my son's 22. I see maybe some of the behaviours in, in him of, you know, this new generation of people and, and how they're influenced by the currency and the immediacy of, of today's world. What can um, a parent do if they have a talented athlete who has a pathway potential pathway what can they do to help them get access to gratitude and get in the best place to you know be better and, and have opportunities that are going to be sustainable i'll answer that with it with a story that i heard um, years ago um, from johnny miller you know one of the great players in this in the 70s and he talked about how he said that he would have had to i think he said he would have had to have been some kind of idiot not to become a great player because he had a a phenomenal upbringing that he didn't realise how phenomenal it was until till years later. And he said that the two things that his father used to ask him after he came off the golf course were, what was what did you enjoy today and what did you learn? Now, if you think about that, if a kid gets asked those questions, what did you enjoy today and what did you learn? You think about the direction that that would send somebody's brain. And if, you, if you're enjoying something and if you're learning constantly from it, you're probably going to be pretty good at it. Whereas 
unfortunately, the, the question that all golfers get asked when they come off the golf course, first question is, what did you do? And what did you do means, what did you shoot? And what was the number? And it's very easy then to begin to equate that if I shoot 68, I'm a good person. If I shoot 76, I'm a bad person. So the whole sense of self-worth, the whole ego is tied up into a number on a scorecard. And unfortunately, as we've alluded to, that number on the scorecard is so unpredictable, is so chaotic. That is a very vulnerable place to be. So I would I would say you're not going to get away from performance and performance is a big part of what we're talking about. But for parents, I would say really look at the questions that you use. You know, the Tony Robbins said years ago that the quality of your life will be determined by the quality of your questions. And, and I think there's never been a truer statement than that because questions focus your attention. And I think you know when you can become a little bit more flexible with the questions that you ask young players when they come off the golf course and make it a little bit more about the experience today, the learning, the enjoyment, things like that. You know, I, I, again, I've seen far too many kids end up hating the game because they, they just can't in the end deal with the whole sense of self-worth being dependent on what a golf ball does. So the concept of playing without a scorecard was recently brought to my attention. I, I haven't played, uh, you know, I don't, everyone thinks I play golf five times a week, which I clearly don't. Um, but I haven't played uh, for a score since before I went to Scotland in July. So maybe June was the last time that I played with a a registered scorecard for my handicap. But I do enjoy playing socially, you know, what I call socially and playing without a score. And, and I do spend some time reflecting on what happened in the day. Um, you know, how did I really sort of feel about playing and, and maybe having a little look at the, the score. And I quite often find that, you know, I've had maybe I always have a bad hole, but if I look at when I play for score, you know, that happens. And I might always have a bad hole, but I'll surprise myself by how many pars, how many birdies, and how many good things that have happened when I'm just out there playing mm -hmm. and enjoying the surroundings and enjoying the company. I guess what I wanted to really go towards is I saw something yesterday pop up on Instagram, and it was a father who had posted a text conversation with his young elite son, and it was like, I'm playing nine holes, I'm five under through seven, I'm going to keep going. And it was that type of exchange. And, and he was just probably out playing casual nine holes, but the whole conversation was around score, score, score. Is that, is that bad, good, or, you know, like should you, should you play for that score? Are you going to learn something with playing with that score? Yeah, I suppose it comes back to is it bad, is it good? It depends on the individual. And if they get something out of that and it's beneficial, well, okay. My my overall view on it would be for most people, it would be it would be fundamentally pretty, pretty bad for them to do because you get so involved in in score. And 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 the whole thing about, you know, I'm I'm three under after five and I'm four under after twelve or whatever. Well, actually you're not. It's I call it the myth of the leaderboard. You know, you're not you're not anything on the golf course. The you know, if you see a leaderboard and you see all these names, you know, twelve under, fourteen under, fifteen under, whatever, the only person who's actually twelve under is the guy who's sat in the clubhouse. Not like cricket, you know, if you if you score some runs at cricket, they never get taken away from you. Hmm. If you score a goal at football, it never gets taken away from you. But the idea that you are anything when you're out on the golf course is a fundamental myth. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on, on, on that alone. So I, I I get people to play lots of different games whereby the focus of attention isn't on the score. But actually, paradoxically, if their attention isn't on the score, you provide the best conditions for the score. Mm. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll get players to... I, I love a game called the accumulation game. Because when you go out and you're focused on scorers, it's usually relative to, you, to your handicap and you've got a scorer in mind. So everything, every drop shot 
that you that you that you have on the golf course you feel like you're losing something you're trying to protect something subconsciously you you know you're a 10 handicapper and if you're going out if you go out for front nine in two on two over you're trying to protect or you start trying to protect your score i i have a game called the accumulation game where literally you start on the first tee with nothing and your goal is to accumulate as many good shots as possible i know that's only a ridiculously simple thing to do but it's amazing how liberating that is because mm. You start with nothing, and every every shot that you've that you've got after that is is an opportunity to accumulate something, and it's amazing when people get into that game and they mark it down on a card, you know, they'll, they'll give, give give themselves a number of, of what a good shot is. So anything above a, a six or a seven is a good shot, and they accumulate, and it, and it, and it's amazing. It's 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 a game where you you you're one shot away from winning all the time, as opposed to one shot away from losing all the time when you become too involved in in the actual par score. I I love that concept. You know, just hearing that that's that's great. And you know, so many times that I've been playing for playing for stable for points and trying to beat my handicap and and getting to the twelfth hole and going, oh right, I'm too up on my handicap. This is great. And then just seeing fourteen, fifteen, sixteen just turn into an abomination on the scorecard and then trying to resurrect it. And maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't. And uh, I really like that concept. I'm going to try that next time I play. I love it. Well, that's a perfect example there, Ross, of what you just said is that you get to a certain number of holes and then you start trying to protect something <laughs> that you think you own. When actually we don't own anything on the golf course and you stop accumulating them, you stop accumulating good shots and you go much more into protection mode. I've, I've only ever won three I think three monthly medals. Never won at my current club, which I've been a member at for 10 years, but I don't play a lot on the weekend because I work on the weekends. But at my previous club, I think I won three monthly medals. I might just be hanging over there. and um, But I reckon I've written 300 acceptance speeches along the journey. <laughs> along the journey. I've only won three, but I, re I reckon in my mind I'd written 300 uh, acceptance speeches. So yeah. um, if I had that knowledge that you've, we've just uh, left uh, – 300 speeches ago I might have only had to write three or four or maybe I got a few more um very good Carl it's you know, I'm conscious of your time we've been talking for over an hour and it's been fantastic last question for me who is your current favorite golfer just in in professional golf globally and and what are some of the reasons why you really like what that particular player is doing and how they're going about it yeah that's a, that's a bit like saying what's your favorite song isn't it really it's a tough one to to bottom down um i mean i do and this is not just i'm not just paying homage to, to the your home country i do love to watch cam smith play um especially i love to watch him on the greens i think he's got a very very he, he seems to be doing i've never worked with him and i'm sure he's, he's never read the book and lots of great coaches but he seems to be doing a lot of lost start stuff on the greens in the sense that you know, there's there's no practice swings. He seems to be very much into his visuals. He has a long look at the hole uh, before he pulls the trigger. He seems to be very feel orientated. His pace control is is is, is wonderful. So, you know, I do I do really enjoy watching him play and his his his, his attitude for the game. But I'm a bit I'm a bit of a I suppose it's it's the, it's the age I'm at now. I I I tend to go back in time far more than a goal go mm -hmm. to the present day if anything i do love to look back on the things that tiger was talking about when he was dominating the game i uh, spend a lot of time looking at, at jack nicholas's career and everybody listening to this just watch just have a look at jack nicholas hole in some some important puts and have a look at the way he looked at the hole and watch the 
go and watch the duel in the sun at Turnbury in 1977. You know, going back even further, great players, Bobby Jones and Lee Trevino, players like that. I'm, I'm fascinated by, as I say, maybe it's a, a reflection of the fact that I'm getting on in time. I've, I'm far more uh, of a historian now than I am probably of, of, of a future, future tense player. I think that crop of golfers, you know, that certainly was in the wheelhouse of my junior years. You know, my dad was a big Jack Nicklaus and, and Seve Ballesteros fan and, you know, Lee Trevino, all of those guys. Um, you know, I hope there's never a point in time where the younger developing golfers of today, you know, lose sight of what those players did for the game, um, especially along the aspect of how to play it and how to, how to you know, grind away and how to perform mentally and how to perform professionally. And, and that's a, a broad way of saying, you know, how to be a great professional golfer because I think um, many of those players from that era, you know, set the standard of, of what the, a golfer should be and should behave and how to perform in conditions. And, and the scores these, day, the, these days aren't that different to, to those days. We talk about equipment and talk about the balls and talk about all technology those guys were shooting low numbers using technology that was way different and way less advantageous to what we do today. Let's not go down the technology rabbit hole, but I just hope that the young golfers of today always have that those players of the yesteryear as a reference. You know, like there's a book up there, Savvy Ballesteros. Whenever I, wherever I want to think about how to just to play the game and just swing a golf club, I look at those photos in that book up there from David Cannon. You probably know David, but that book up there and some of the pictures up there and just reminds me of what swinging a golf club and just letting it go was all about. I've got the I've got the same book. Yeah, it's a wonderful wonderful piece of work with Seve. And uh, if I had one wish, really, and you know, maybe sound like a dinosaur saying this, that I know there's so much on YouTube these days, and all that has its place. And there's guys playing matches amongst themselves, and people in the millions watch that. Which part of me can't really understand that, but, but as I say, that's maybe maybe reflection on far more of a reflection on me than than anybody else. But if I had one wish, it would be for younger players just to just to dive into some of the uh, the archives and, and and watch matches that Seve played in and watch matches that Nicholas played in and Trevino and those guys and there's a there's a the, you know yeah yeah there's there's a lot of stuff that we haven't we don't know yet and there's a lot of things to be discovered but there's a lot of things that those guys did discover and they knew how to play and I think you know it can be a great education to watch them work the way around the golf course and the way that they went about the business so yeah have a have a look into the past as well as looking forward Carl, if we want to find the Mind Caddy app, it's just on the App Store. Just go in there and it's just Mind yeah. Caddy. That's pretty simple to download. As we said there yeah. when we talked about it, there's no cost involved. You just download the app and there is some uh, instructional material there you can follow and you get an insight into what the app's all about. But of course, then if you want to go further and you value the convenience of having mental performance coaching on an app, you know you have it right there at your disposal and, and that's an asset. Um, of course, you've got the Mind Factor. Of course, you've got the books there that we've written. Get the books. Where can you get the books if you want to buy? If someone wants to buy the books, yeah, the best place is just the uh, the Amazon channels. Yep. Really, you know, you can you can get the, they're available on Kindle and obviously hardback as well. Carl, if there's nothing else from you, I'm I'm respectful of your time. I've, I really have appreciated the chat. It's been broad, but um, I think there's some great nuggets of gold there for younger golfers, for for people who just might be out there trying to get their handicap better week in, week out and win a ball comp or win a monthly medal or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, some great insights from some of your elite experience as well. We could probably talk for another hour on all of that. Maybe we can talk about it again at some stage in the future. Hopefully one day I'd love to meet you in person over there in Manchester at a Mind Factor training. Might have a look at the online stuff because it is an area that I've got a, a deep interest in. Um, I really do appreciate you coming on. No, it's been great. I've, uh, I've enjoyed the 
the conversations and it's felt like a genuine conversation or else it's not been a series of scripted questions which I uh, I, I do appreciate that so it's uh, been, a, been a lot of fun Ah, oh, very good well uh, most of the most of the guests know that uh, my questions sometimes get made up on the spot but uh, there's usually always a, an idea and a strategy and, a, and, a, and a, a genuine level of thought behind it and very much so after listening to you for a number of years and following um, you along um, I've really appreciated the opportunity to talk to you and um, you know Andy Proudman I know he's one of your past clients and Andy's been a guest on the podcast and you know any anything that andy does i love following along and i know he i've listened to andy talk about you so it's absolutely um, a pleasure um spending the time chatting thank you very much i really appreciate it thank you ross